0: As I reflected on all of the adoptee conversations over the last nearly three years, during a gift of rest I gave myself in December 2023, I settled on rebroadcasting a few episodes. Whether you've listened to the recordings before or for the first time, I trust that it will serve as a reminder that you as an adoptee are not alone because others have shared their wealth of experience with the world. It's Jennifer Diane Gostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee. Being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? I met my next guest years ago. But only this past March have we come to know each other better. He's been connected to the adoption community for a long time and contributed to the constellation in big ways. As a filmmaker, he co-created a stellar project, the documentary film series entitled Six-Word Adoption Memoir, shown to rave reviews, many tears, and smiles at various adoption conferences nationwide. Adoptees list six words to describe their adoption experience. In this episode, Ridge Haas affectionately called Ridge, shares a part of his big story as a bio dad who relinquished his son at birth and 16 years later would learn that he, too, was an adopted person. As a late-discovery adoptee, he experienced a shift in his perspective about the subject of adoption. Ridge has a spot-on sense of humor when you least expect it. I think he missed his calling with stand-up comedy because he lands a joke with the best of straight faces. I find him to be one of the most caring adoptees in the community about how others are doing and being as they navigate the complexities of their experience as adoptees. Allow me to introduce you to Ridge, someone who is creative, a wealth of information, and never fails to make me say, Oh, now I get it. I'm pretty sure he will leave an unforgettable impression on you, like he did me, from the moment you hear him share a mere fraction of his journey. Ridge, I'm so glad you accepted my invitation to have a conversation with me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm thrilled to be here, Jennifer. (laughs) You know, working with you over the last few months has been a joy, so the opportunity to be here is just a delight.
0: I know I've met you before we started working together as co-facilitators with adoptive Voices, but I feel like I really am getting to know you. So I, it's been a treat to really get to spend the kind of time each week uh, with you, Sarah, and Alice has been really nice. And so for you to, to come on and be a part of the podcast means that others will get a chance to hear your story and, and just what makes you who you are. And so wherever you want to start... And however much you want to share, that would be great.
1: I always fear sounding narcissistic because, you know, people are like, oh, tell me about your story. And I'm like, well, just go listen to Jennifer's podcast, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or or wherever, you know, wherever it's popping up. Right. Um, God, that just sounds so. Sounds sounds a bit uh, full of myself, but no, I'm. But you I'm have happy such a story.
0: Yeah, yeah, you have such a full story, and it's 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 a lot in your story.
1: Yeah, yeah. You would ask me a couple of questions before we started this um, in your email, and so I'm gonna I'll share kind of the shell of my story because it can be a lot. Um, and I really liked your questions, so I want to be able to to have some time to get into those when I when I start talking about my story it's always it's always difficult to know quite where to begin the very beginning of my story in adoption land, particularly uh, the very beginning of my story in my mind anyway is is when I relinquished a son to adoption. I was nineteen years old I had had a um, engaged relationship that had split up, and after the split up, we found out that she was pregnant. So we tried to work things out, tried to put things back together, but uh, what was broken couldn't be fixed easily, especially not under the pressure of thinking about being parents. And and so the beginning of my journey in adoption land, for me, always starts there, mm. uh, relinquishing Zach. And then 16 years later, I found out that I am adopted. I have a, a social worker from the state reach out. Uh, and She said that my birth mother was looking for me. And of course, I was never told that I was adopted throughout uh, infancy or childhood or my teenage years, nor as an adult. I didn't fit in to my family, but I had had friends who also didn't quite fit into their family. So I I didn't think much of it at the time. So when the social worker says, your birth mother wants to be in touch with you, I said, you mean Zach's birth mother? And she said, no, I mean yours. Hmm. And I said, well, I'm not adopted. And she said, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not sorry, but... I don't think I should be the first person to tell you this. You're adopted. That is the that is the first moment in time for my story, but it's usually not the beginning. Um, being a late discovery adoptee, you know, discovering as I was in adulthood, um, it was quite a shift for me. That is probably the my fullest entrance into adoptee land was. Okay, I'm an adoptee, and I have biological parents out there. I have a biological son. So I found myself in kind of a dual capacity uh, for adoption.
0: Sure. When I first heard your story in that part when the social worker, well, you say, but I'm not adopted, and then she responds, like, does time stand still? Like, I just can't even imagine what that feels
1: like. Because you're, like, in your 30s, right? I was 35. I think time standing still is probably one of those appropriate um, descriptions. I think another metaphor that that comes to mind, um, and really it just... It really just came to mind here talking to you now, Jennifer. It was it was like when you step out on the ice and you hear that crack. Mm. And you're like, Oh, wait a second. Right. <laughs> Am I in trouble? Yes. You know, like is all of this about to give way underneath my feet?
0: I felt that. Yeah, I uh, felt that.
2: Yeah. You know,
1: that step crack. Oh no! What's next? Uh, it's probably metaphorically on target mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what was next. It could have been drowning, and probably for two years there was a bit of that drowning. But I had, I had people who were like me, which was incredible. I had people who were wanting to know me having been estranged from my adoptive family for so long that desire to be known or that was that was strong so I was probably flailing a bit but the waters weren't freezing Mm -hmm. and I found support I found connection And so the whole journey was worthwhile.
0: So you find out in that moment you're adopted, what happens next?
1: Well, the first thing that I did was I called my adoptive parents, not obviously knowing that they were my adoptive parents, because I I thought, this is a big deal. Like, wouldn't you tell somebody they're biologically related to somebody else, especially because of the family medical history uh, which wasn't great so I had gone to doctor's appointments I had had a um, I had had a medical issue that was discovered through the sports physicals I was playing football suddenly I'm giving my medical history um, and this is one of the first things that came back to mind I'm giving my medical history for the for the family that raised me not knowing that that's not actually my medical history Mm -hmm. so so when I was told that I was adopted, you know, my mind went back to that that moment where I'm passing around this medical history to different doctors and seeing them and, and having dye tests. And and I thought, God, that just feels fucking criminal mm-hmm. that, you know, this is not my genetic history. And yet you're having me tell this to all of these doctors I just felt so irresponsible Mm-hmm. Uh, amongst, amongst many things, uh, uh, childhood, I had, I had abusive experiences in childhood. They were alcoholics, but this, you know, like uh, it was just all part of the package, I guess. So when the social worker said you're adopted, I thought, well, I should, I should probably confirm this, you know, with a couple of people who would know if I were adopted and they said, Oh no, the social worker's wrong. You know, that you're not adopted. What? Yeah. I just finished law school, so as I listened to them answer the questions, I thought they're not answering the question. Uh, like they're giving me a denial, but they're not actually answering the question. And so, in that moment, I mean, not only what the social worker had to say, but in that moment, I thought, oh my god, they're lying to me, like right now. Mm. And and this whole uh, this whole revelation was about to unfold you know, first thing that I did was I called them and they and they said, No, of course you're not adopted And then I thought, Oh my God, I am adopted.
0: So this ice is really cracking.
1: Yeah. And 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 again that like that metaphor, it's it's appropriate to a degree because really most of childhood felt like I was always on that ice. Mm. You know, and I was trying to get out of that. Where I landed from all of this is far, far from thin ice versus how this, the situation in which I was raised, you know, Mm -hmm. that was much closer to the thin ice. So there's a little bit of an inversion in, in that part of it.
0: Mm -hmm. So at some point, and um, you tell me when you say, I'm going to find my original family.
1: Yeah. That was pretty much right away. As soon as I realized they were lying, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting. Uh, because I've, I've talked to the social worker. She said that my birth mother wants to be in touch with me. She has a contact card and I can request from her that information. That's what I do right away. I say, yeah, send me that card. Send me, um, and there was a form the state needed uh, to be notarized to receive my full adoption record. And I said, "Send that too." So um, all of these things happened within probably seconds of each other. Tina is the social worker. she uh, she has maintained contact over the years, and she's just a wonderful human. And I'm so grateful. Uh, that she handled all of that with such grace and dignity. She immediately sent off the contact card that she had received and and the form for release of records uh, right away. I think she and I spoke on a Monday, and on that Friday, and I had been I had been watching uh, post delivery every day that week. On Friday, I saw the postal delivery take place. And I jogged out to the postal box for our neighborhood, um, opened up our box and, you know, there was that classic official, you know, orange kind of colored manila envelope with uh, state markings on it. And so I walked back to the house opening that uh, as I, as I did the the packaging was open by the time I walked in the front door. Um, I reached in. There was a 4x5 card uh, as well as some other as well as some other materials. Uh, and on this photocopy of the, of the 4x5 card was uh, yeah this you know, just this script and it said, hi, my name is Barbara and I'm looking for, Tile, parenthesis, question mark, uh, baby boy house. And I would just like to know if you're okay, please reach out um, if you want to talk or need anything. And and there beneath uh, the script was uh, an address and a telephone number. And, And I'm a huge believer in telepathy. Uh, especially telekinesis, because at that moment I finished reading the card that she had sent and the telephone is in my hand at the same time. Um, and I really don't know how the phone got there mm. um, aside from telekinesis, you know, that it uh, either it had a Disney movie moment, you know, and sprung to life and sang a song and jumped <laughs> in my hand. Or that it, you know, shot like the force across the room, but suddenly I'm holding mm-hmm. the phone and I'm looking at her number and I'm calling the number, and all of these, all of these things just happened, like dominoes, just boom, boom, boom. Uh, I call, a woman answers. Uh, she says hello. I said hi. So my name is, <laughs> you know, my name is, and uh, I'm looking for Barbara, and she said this is she. Um, and we always, uh, now when we talk about this, we remember this moment differently. She says, she she picked up, I said, you know, I'm looking for Barbara. She said, this is she. And I say, my name, and I'm looking for her. Her, her recollection of this is, she says to me, I'm going to have to sit down. If she said that, I didn't hear a thing. And I'm not sure what to say next. That's what and you so, say. Yeah that's, yeah, that's what I said. And she remembers that. What she remembers differently is that she said, hold on, I need to sit down. Because for her, this was 35 years mm-hmm. of relinquishment and waiting and wondering and all of that. And so we, we have that conversation and hearing her voice was comforting. There was a familiarity. She immediately says, well, do you still live in Kansas? And for all of the other things that had uh, anecdotally confirmed who she would be for me, that was one of those keystones that slipped into place. Mm -hmm. Do you still live in Kansas? Mm.
0: Did you still live in Kansas?
1: I did. Mm. did, At the time I did live in Kansas.
0: Yeah. So I want to go back when you get the the envelope and you read the words she has written. Those words, right? That's her writing. Yeah,
1: this is her handwriting.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you remember what that felt like to see her handwriting?
1: I'm such a I'm such a handwriting snob. Um, <laughs> what is that? I mean? love. Well, you know, when you get into junior high school, girls are practicing different scripts with their hand. I always found myself just captivated with that rolling long letters, you know, I mean just that beautiful scripty font.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And honestly, there's there's a couple of girls that I broke up with because when they wrote me notes, like I just didn't find their handwriting all that attractive. <laughs>
0: are you serious? Or, you probably I are know, serious. It's,
1: it's it's sad. It's sad. And they're they're perfectly fine people. They just right. needed better handwriting. <laughs> You know, seeing her writing was—it wasn't quite like junior high, but it was that. Oh, I really like how she writes. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a this is a beautiful font. It was nice. I I can't imagine if it had been chicken scratch. You know, like I'm. Oh <laughs> man, maybe I'm not adopted after all.
0: <laughs> Ridiculous a humorous. It's really it's something special. <laughs> I just remember seeing my birth mother's signature on my original birth certificate. And it just, it was so moving. Like I didn't even expect to feel what I felt seeing it.
1: Yeah. It is a beautiful thing to be taken by surprise in those moments where they're big. I mean, there's a lot of emotions and, and you feel like, You're at the end of a thing and maybe at the beginning of a thing. And there are these other little moments that come in from the side. Like when I saw her for the first time, I saw red hair. And I thought, oh oh my gosh, that looks like my, that looks like the hair just kind of off the, off the chin on my beard, that color of red. Mm -hmm. And nobody else had that. So in the midst of this otherwise large emotion, you're also getting this. Beautiful little touching thing
0: What was that like when you both put eyes on each other?
1: We had flown to we had flown to a neutral location. Mm-hmm. She was living in Washington. I was living in Kansas. She had a friend who had a house in Denver, and it was really it was a shorter flight for me, but it was about as easy for me to get to Denver as it was for her. It was a good middle spot. Um, And in the Denver airport, all of the trams are below ground. So you come up and once you're off the tram to get into different terminal spaces or ground transportation, I had come up this escalator and I stepped into a terminal area and it was just packed with people. And this is where we had said that we would meet because it's, it's before you leave security. And so we knew that only, only certain passengers could get into this space, but it was crammed. It was like rock concert crammed mm. with people. And so I found myself looking out over the crowd because I'm, you know, medium, a little, little taller than average height. So I can see over many people and I am just, I'm not seeing her and I'm scanning, you know, 200, 270 degrees left to right, back to left. And I'm just not seeing her. Um, and it turns out that she saw me coming up the escalator. And a ducked uh, not really duck, but she had, she had stood beside a pole. So when I came off the escalator, she was immediately behind me. And she just said that she needed those few seconds to kind of collect herself. Because when last she saw me, I was 20 inches long hmm. uh, with a little... Sprig of red hair off the top of my head. And that was it. For her, it was this collapsing time, you know, 35 years warp speed to, you know, a, a, a man, you know, she left a newborn and now sees a man standing in front of her.
0: That is really something. Like, I, I just wonder for birth parents what that is. A baby is the less thought you have and here this is a 30 something year old or 40 or however old an adoptee yeah. is in re- person like a full-grown like decades old like what yeah. that must feel like mm-hmm. for them so for
1: you yeah, what I, was it like it was great to see her we had traded photographs through email and we had spoken on the phone several times In between the initial phone conversation, which was in January, and now we were meeting face-to-face at the end of February. So about seven weeks had passed. Often you'll hear people talk about reunion, or once they're in reunion, how biological parents will revert to the age of relinquishment. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I could see her as this 18-year-old hippy-dippy teenager a little uncertain about all that's before her. Mm-hmm. Like I could see that caution. I could see that uncertainty and I could see the, the joy of this moment.
0: Yeah. Was she by herself?
1: Yeah, she was by herself. We took a car over to her friend Philip's house, had dinner and just spent three days walking around Denver, walking around the neighborhood I asked every question I could think of, but I was really naive about what reunion was all about. Not having been active in adoption land, there were a lot of questions I didn't ask. There were a lot of elements to the reunion that I really wasn't ready for, but I didn't even know that I wouldn't be ready for them. Sure. Did until, she... Until, you know, later on in therapy.
0: Right. How did she feel about learning that you learned so late in life that you were adopted?
1: When we had our first conversation, I started that conversation with, I should tell you that my parents deny that I'm adopted. And that makes me think that the state could have made a mistake. It makes me think that my parents this is the most likely option, are lying to me. But in either of those cases, it is it is true that you know you've relinquished a son. I just don't know that I'm that son.
0: Mm-hmm. That so, was smart.
1: Yeah. I said, if, if you need boots on the ground, I'm happy to help you find your son if I'm not him.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. So that
1: was very very early okay after after she said you still live in kansas felt like i i need to jump into this right away because this is clearly a woman who lost a son and i get that like i understand how that impacts my situation was different because i was in touch with zach every year from his birth like we threw the football we went on walks uh, we had dinners so um, I had a pretty open adoption. I didn't raise Zach. I was around Zach often mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine how I would feel about seeing Zach after so long or Zach not knowing you know all of these things kind of collided. Um, but I thought it would be important for her to find her son because she clearly it was a it was a hole in her that I could see
0: right. And at some point you share with Zach that you have learned you're an adopted person.
1: Yeah. I shared with Zach right away, (laughs) but Zach at the time was 16. um, And so it was a subject of conversation between Zach and I over the next few years, probably even now, you know, we still talk about some elements of that. Recently I've, I've been a part of a biological father research effort from a university in california and so i've been on several interviews talking about my experience as a as a bio dad and and uh living that out because you know zach is now 31 years old he's got his own family i mean not just the family that raised him but he got married and he's got friends and Right. So adoption is still a thing that comes up, you know, every now and then with Zach and I. Mm
0: -hmm. Did he have an opinion that sticks out about you, like not knowing all those years? And
1: I don't. I don't remember Zach saying a thing about my status uh, as an adoptee through the late discovery adoptee lens.
0: Mm -hmm. And as a birth dad which is, was one of my questions. Did your perspective about adoption change once you discovered so late yeah. in life? I think
1: that as I think about the chronology, if I had known that I was adopted, I can't say that I would have relinquished Zach. The prevailing wisdom that was given to me at the time was, your son is going to need a two-parent household. And I didn't dispute that. Mm-hmm. Uh, to an 18, 19-year-old, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Uh, you know, I was raised in a, in a house of dysfunction. Not having a two-parent household could feel dysfunctional. I knew what it was like to grow up in dysfunction. So when, um, you know, when someone said to me, your child is going to need a two-parent house," I was like, well, yeah, of course they do, because I feel all screwed up. And and I had a two-parent house, but it was, you know, it was full of messiness. So the prevailing wisdom being find a family, you know, that can raise Zach. I went along with that. I mean, I was. Made sense. But if I if I would known that I was adopted, I don't know that I would have agreed. Zach had perfectly fine parents, but there's something about being raised in biological families uh, that I think is just really important, that I wouldn't have thought was important before. Right. So, yeah, my discovery certainly shifted my take on adoption.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting that as a birth dad or bio dad, which one do you prefer, bio dad?
1: I use them both. Okay. I don't. I probably say biodad more often just because it's fewer syllables and there's a symmetry in the B-I-O-D-A-D, but right. that's just my quirkiness, you know? <laughs>
0: right. Well, I find it interesting that even though that was your experience many years ago, 31 years ago, uh, you were not connected to the adoption community?
1: Yeah. And um, that's... um. It's something that I notice when whenever we go to conferences and, and you, you and I met, I think, AAC in Cleveland or Denver, maybe. Um,
0: One of the two. I was at both. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like I, I have distinct memories of, of meeting you, you know, at those conferences, uh, the AAC at the time, I would say they were 70% plus female.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I don't know I don't know what the breakdown is for adoptees to biological parents to adoptive parents to professionals who are not within the triad, you know, but are in the constellation. So those stats don't come to mind readily, but uh, just the the gendered difference is apparent more females than males, which meant if, if there were biological parents there, you're probably looking at more uh, bio moms than bio dads. Mm-hmm. And so with, with more bio moms, than bio dads and more female adoptees than male adoptees, you know, of course, uh, some people identify as, as non-binary. Um, and I'm not trying to dismiss them at all, just in how, just in how people present, you know, I observed that, the the men are less involved in the community, uh, at least within those conferences. Mm-hmm, so, sure. I don't know. I don't quite know why. When I'm in the male adoptee groups, one of the things that we talk about often is the social socialization of males. We're told to stuff feelings, to go it alone, to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Um, and I and I have to wonder. Whether this situation is similar for biofathers, bio dads, that they're just told to go to loan. Mm. And so they don't reach out to communities, which is not always the case. I mean, I am an example, but I largely came in because of my adoptee status, not because of my biological status.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, you kind of answered a couple of questions there that I had as to the, your thoughts why males, male adoptees are underrepresented because it's clearly the case. And I know a lot of, I know quite a few male adoptees. Mm -hmm. And I would say maybe one out of 10 is involved in the community, maybe less than that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think your one out of 10 statistic is, is probably on par from what I've seen as well. I know Brian Stanton talks about in his play, Blank, he talks about a conversation with another adoptee while they were in high school. Um, I think he said he was on the swim team with this kid and they were riding home from school one night. And he said, hey, you know, you're adopted, right? He's like, yeah. And he was like, do you ever, do you ever get in touch with your biological parents? And the kid's like, no. And then I think, I think he has the kid say something like, they probably don't want to hear from me. And, and then Brian's character goes, "Oh, oh yeah, huh, wow, maybe not, and, and so some of those some of those narratives fit the you know the broader socialization of men to be uh oh, do it on your own. They don't really want to hear from you don't don't take your troubles to somebody else, and so I can see all of those things working together to mean that you know maybe one in ten male adoptee is involved with the community,
0: mm-hmm. I know you have been connected to the community for a while now, probably over 10 years, right? Somewhere around there, I yeah. would think.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so you've had an opportunity to learn a lot. And what would you say is the most important thing you've learned being connected?
1: You know, Jennifer, I think one of the most important things that I've learned is how how rich and supportive the adoption community can be when I was sitting in a group of men for the first time I didn't have to explain every thought like I could say a thing and then I didn't have to explain the backstory because I saw the nods Mm -hmm. around the room of people who were like oh yeah yeah been there Mm -hmm. or when I would sit down I remember I had um I had a dinner with a couple of LDAs before I started going to conferences. We got connected on Facebook, and I happened to be in their, in their town. And so the three of us met for dinner. Stacy, the female LDA in, in, the, in the dinner party, said something about for so long she distrusted her intuition because she felt like something was wrong in her family, but she could never figure out what it was, and she, she never imagined that it would be a secret that big mm. that she wasn't biologically related to the family. And so telling, talking about my stuff, hearing other people talk about their stuff within the adoption community, it's just the community can be rich and rewarding and, and healing. And that's probably one of the most vital things for me in adoption land is, is that level of openness and just love.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree, and one of the things that that I've been really thinking about lately is the search and reunion being a potentially healing experience. Search and reunion. What are your thoughts about that?
1: You know, I have a couple of friends. Uh, first, my search and reunion was super easy. I had a biological mom. Who was looking for me I had immediate access to my records being in Kansas it was it's an open record state they never closed my search for my biological dad was five minutes on a search engine and so it's it's a challenge for me to talk about reunion because my reunion was a piece of cake but I've talked to a lot of adoptees, you know, all across the board. Some who had great reunions, some who had great initial reunions, some who found graves in in their reunion, um, and some who've never found anything. Um, and and my heart, my heart goes out to all of them. Right now, I've got a friend who is an international adoptee, and she has said, "I don't want to find my biological family." I have to respect that. I have to say, okay, And at the same time, I also say, and if you ever want to, you know, I'm happy to pull as many resources as I can get into assisting you in your search. For me, it was vital to be in reunion. I finally understood so many things about me, where they came from. To see myself in the world was incredibly healing. And some people have... Shitty families, no matter which direction on the tree they go. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think it's imperative. I just know that I, it was an easy search, and I've derived a lot of benefit, a lot of heartache too. Even in, even in reunion, in the best of reunions, uh, there's still disappointment. You know, there's still people don't get along, and you meet somebody, and you're like, oh, that's great, and then you never hear from them again, and you know, you're feelings of rejection are activated and it's not all roses.
0: Definitely not. Because I found graves, both um, birth parents were deceased Mm -hmm. many years, many years before I even searched. But I think, you know, I did discover a brother and nieces and nephews Mm -hmm. and great, like a lot of other family members that mean, I'm going to say just as much and maybe more because when I think of the younger generation, yeah, they're gonna—they're probably gonna be around a while. Probably yeah. outlive me. So, um, in many ways, it, it's been really rewarding to find them. When I think of healing, like when I talking about the potential for healing in search and reunion, I'm thinking of um, as adoptees, we want information, we want truth. And we want connection. And it may not be with a birth parent. It may not be with, you know, it may not be these relationships after the honeymoon stage and all of that. But there's connection in other ways, and especially with the adoption community. My journey, I was fortunate to have being a part of the adoption community. And some of those relationships built along the way, you know, with search and in reunion are so mm-hmm. solid now, you know, because they yeah. were with me through all of that it's not going to be necessarily even what you think it's going to be when you're embarking upon it. And it certainly may not, a lot of things may not be so nice about what you discover or find.
1: You know, one of the things you said right there, Jennifer, that really resonates is that search for truth. I can, I can take whatever it is just so long as it's true. You know, truth has taken on a, a different level of significance for me at this stage in my process if somebody tries to feed me a line of bull I'm like back that train up because you are not parking here with that i think truth is vital at least it has been for me just so that i know and uh, i can't imagine like other like you other adoptees that i know you know met graves and and i've tried to i've tried to imagine that for myself you know how would that feel just at least knowing and I think that's a new level of anguish. Some of the questions you have just cannot ever be answered now, and that might feel conclusive. It might also feel eternally inconclusive. But that's part of the journey, you know. And I recommend it. Obviously, always taking care of yourself, making sure that you're exercising self-care throughout this process. Because adoptees tend to give. A lot of adoptees that I know are givers, and and like givers way beyond what they have to give. So yeah, Yeah. take care of yourself.
0: Well, I guess uh, we can wrap it up. And is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share with the um, community in particular LDAs? You know, LDAs,
1: uh, late discovery adoptees, we have a private Facebook group. If you can find Susan Bennett on Facebook, the, the 23andMe and the Ancestry.com, you know, when I joined the LDA group, there were maybe a hundred of us. And after seven years, I think there were maybe 200. And over the last three years, now we're above 500. A lot of those have come about because somebody gets a 23andMe test kit for Christmas. Yes. And yes. Suddenly, suddenly there's there's not mom, there's not dad. And they're like, hey, wait, hey, I've got questions. Like, I did this because I wanted to see how far back into history I could, I could find ancestors, and I can't even find you at this point. So, the LDA Facebook private Facebook group, like I said, Susan Bennett runs that. It's it's a great resource. It's a great community. They're they're hearing that cracking ice, and it's like, oh wait what's coming up so that's been a tremendous resource for me for the LDAs and I really like something you said Jennifer about when you were doing your search you know people who are helping you people were with you like that strengthened your bonds Brian Stanton was one of the first male adoptees that I met and he was looking for his father at the time um, and that was 10 years ago um, and so over the last 10 years we've been down dead ends and we've been out in the middle of nowhere, you know, where he doesn't really know what the next clue is. Um, and then shortly before the um, shortly before COVID really hit, he found his birth father. And that was such a joyous moment for me mm. because I had been on the journey with him, Right. you know, getting updates and checking in. and and so, you know, for somebody on the other side, for somebody who, who's that support, it's remarkable. Um, and, and I think that just goes back to the community side. That's been the most important thing for me in adoption land has been the, the beauty of the community and our tribe.
0: Right. Uh, so yeah. I
1: just I just wanted to touch on that since you had mentioned it as well.
0: Well I'm glad you shared that because I too have experienced that kind of connection. I mean We think search reunion, connection with birth family. But it's bigger than that. It's connection with all these relationships within the adoption community. And I'm often thinking a lot of people, like, I might not be talking to you right now if I wasn't adopted. (laughs) Right. You know, and a part of Adoptee Voices. And and I think a real good place to close, at least on my end, is six-word adoption memoir. Yeah. Let's
1: just
0: talk about that, how you created that, what a beautiful thing that is.
1: That's another nutshell. I was in San Francisco, Jean Strauss, very, um, very well known amongst the adoption community for her films and a a lovely woman. I, you know, Jean is amazing. She was doing a workshop on, you know, adoption documentaries, Uh, being a filmmaker. I was curious. So I went and then I heard, a man on the other side of the room asked a question and I was like oh he's a filmmaker and one of the last things Jean said before she wrapped up her workshop was if she were starting over like if she knew everything that she knew and she were starting over she would make more films shorter films I took that as a impetus Mm -hmm. Um, hearing so many adoptees talk about their stories some similarities but really moving differences I, I ran across the other room, met the guy who was asking that question, and he and I started talking for the next year about how can we tell more stories, shorter stories. And that was how Six Word Adoption Memoirs uh, came about. We do an interview, we ask some questions. We want people to tell us, you know, what is their adoption journey in a six-word memoir form? The, the classic anecdotal story is... Um, Ernest Hemingway was asked to write the shortest story possible. And he wrote three doubles, baby shoes, for sale, never worn. Now, I've never been able to find that in any of Hemingway's letters. It's never been confirmed, you know, through any other sources. But that's the urban legend about the six-word memoir. Mm. Um, And so we wanted people to do that with with their own story. You know, if you're telling your story in a six-word memoir, in adoption land, what's what's what is that? Yeah, it was a way for us to get into an interview, ask some questions. And then it was a way for us to build a really short narrative around what they were saying to us. So we could take a 30 minute interview and compress it into a like a four minute rough cut. But I really wanted all interviews to be under two minutes long. Mm-hmm. And so we're really talking about, you know, concentrating the juices in in this short piece. Lots of emotion, all in all directions. So that was the that was the impetus. More stories, shorter stories. And I thought two minutes is a good length, now, somewhat arbitrary, but. Mm-hmm. So we just we started to collect people's stories and cut them into a two minute two minute piece.
0: So well done. Yeah. Thank you. So I am going to put your bio in the show notes. So I I hope listeners will definitely check out the show notes because we don't have enough time to go through everything. But I just thank you so much for taking the time out, Rich, to have this conversation.
1: Great to be here, Jennifer. Thanks for doing this.
0: When Ridge described that metaphor of the ice cracking, I felt that. He has a way with words and descriptions that he seems to pull from thin air. Maybe it has something to do with being a professor of English and communication. I know when he's in the room, we all seem to sit up straight just a little bit more and do our very best. What I especially like about Ridge is his willingness to be vulnerable transparent and real what you see is what you get with absolutely no pretense it further confirms that there is plenty of space for all of us to do the same he wouldn't expect anything less thank you Ridge for saying yes to a conversation with me a bit about what makes you you and your major contributions to the adoption community it has been a privilege and a pleasure working side by side with you, Sarah, and Alice with the Adoptee Voices Writing Group. I truly believe the best is still yet to come for all of us in Adoptee land because of you. Remember to always look at the show notes of each episode for more information about our guest. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow, and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word. Hashtag Thank
2: you for being here.